a seat. Welcome to Bayou City. Pull out a Bible and tell the person on your right and left, I'm glad that you're here today. I want to take you to sub-Sahara Africa this morning because there's a problem there. It's a population boom happening that's outpacing the rest of the world. At the same time, uh, living conditions are not ideal, and so the citizens are looking for options. And one of the options that they have is to cross the Sahara Desert to pay off military checkpoints, to pay off police, to get to the coast. And at the coast, they'll pay a smuggler to take them across the Mediterranean Sea so they can get into Europe. And all their hope is to get into to Europe. And what you know, because you've been watching this unfold through the news and on television, is that they're going to end up in a refugee camp. And there's been studies done by professionals that tell us that if you end up in a refugee camp, you will not have the dream accomplished that you had in your heart when you left your homeland. And maybe your children won't even have that dream, but your grandchildren may have a chance. You won't have a dream because you live as a refugee. Your children, once they're in the camp, they can't get an education there. There's no schooling in the refugee camp. So at best hope, it's your grandchildren who may live the life that you fled your country for. You've seen this unfolding on the news. You know all of these things. And I wonder, as you've been watching, have you ever considered that you might be able to make a difference? Let's think locally. Uh, last month, I met with the mayor, and he didn't know who I was and still honestly doesn't know who I am. And and so we're having some small talk in his office, and after a few minutes, he gives me that look, because everyone who comes to the mayor's office is, is eventually going to ask him for something. So he gives me that look, what can I do for you? And I said, well, actually, we're here for a different reason. We want to know what can we do for you. I said, because we're not the largest church in your city, and we don't have the most money of all the churches in your city, but we do have the hardest working people. And they are going to leverage their lives for the good of this city in Jesus' name. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective as mayor, where would you like to aim us? Maybe there can be some things that you are trying to accomplish that we are also trying to accomplish. And he was kind of stunned at first. And eventually what he said is, he's like, you know, Houston, we have areas of town and they're really struggling. And everybody wants to give them a one stop solution, one magic fix. We do this one thing, everything goes away. And he says, you know, it's more complicated than that. And he said, I'm looking for people to join my team so we can tackle these problems holistically. And you know, Houston, Texas, you know, its strengths and your weaknesses, you know, it's Mexican food, but also it's other things. (laughs) You know what it's good at and you know what it's not good at. And I just wonder as, as you've ever been driving through town and you've seen and bumped into some of those things, if you've ever thought, maybe I could make a difference. Before you start answering yes or no to those things, I want you to write down a question this morning. What could I accomplish if I was confident God was with me, he had empowered me, and he loved me? What could I accomplish if I was confident God was with me, he had empowered me, and he loved me? We started the Gospel of Mark last week, and today we pick up in verse 8. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So it says that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee to the Jordan River. Now we know where Nazareth is, we're unclear about the exact location where Jesus met John the Baptist at the Jordan River. The most important question we need to ask this morning about this is why did Jesus feel the need to be baptized? We learned last week that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and confession of sin. Like us, the Israelites, the Jewish people, had let the consistent rhythms of life lull them into sleep. So they should have been eagerly anticipating the Messiah sent by God, the Savior. They should have been actively looking for him, preparing themselves for that moment. But they weren't. They had been lulled to sleep. And John was their wake-up call. He was their alarm. And, And so they would come to John for baptism. It was a baptism of readiness. I'm ready for the Messiah. I have ears to hear and I have eyes to see when the Messiah Arrives, But Jesus didn't need to confess sin. He didn't need to repent. John makes that clear when he says, I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandal, let alone be the one to baptize him. And in Matthew chapter 3, John questions Jesus. I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, we need to do this because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's because there's something unique about God that most of us misunderstand. We think of God the way Adam and Eve thought of God. You remember when they sinned, when they ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to? What did they do? They tried to put as much distance between them and God as possible. They hid. That's what we think. We think God wants to be as far away as possible, and it's in his best interest, and it's in my best interest to keep distance. But what Jesus shows us by being baptized is Jesus comes to stand shoulder to shoulder with us, even though he is not like us. We need a baptism of readiness and repentance and alertness, but Jesus did not. But he still wants to not put distance. He comes to close the distance. It says in verse 10 that he saw the heavens being torn open. There's actually a prophecy that this fulfilled, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would quake at your presence. So we see in Isaiah there's a prophecy, there's a prediction, there's a word from God that God would rip over the heavens and come down and be present. And we see that happening here at Jesus' baptism. The heavens were torn open. We also see the Trinity here, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a mysterious doctrine, but we see it in the pages of Scripture. We worship one God and only one God, but that one God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see all three here. We see the Father, and it says, and a voice came down from heaven, you are my beloved Son. We see the Son, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. We see the Spirit, the Spirit descending on him like a dove in verse 10. Now this is an important theological moment. Because the Trinity, there's an element of mystery to it. And because there's mystery to it, there's been some confusion along the way. And confusion has taken on a name. It's called modalism. It's a historic heresy. Modalism essentially says, well, I have one God, but that God has appeared in three different forms. So you have God in the Old Testament. He's up on the mountain, and he's got lightning and thunder, and his name is Jehovah and Yahweh. But then then that God morphs into Jesus, and we see Jesus in the Gospels, and he's kind, and he's gentle, and he died on the cross, and he was resurrected from the dead. 
and he sent it up into heaven, but then he morphed into the Holy Spirit, and now he's with us. But we see from Jesus' baptism that that doctrine cannot be true, that that's, in fact, the opposite, because we see all three here at Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, it says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now this was prophesied that the Messiah of Israel would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. This is one of those Christmas passages that we break out in December. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which meant of the lineage of King David, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus quoted another prophecy from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So as we read the Gospels and we see Jesus operating in these ways, when we see Jesus operating with wisdom and understanding, counsel, might, with a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, when he's proclaiming liberty to the poor and good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind and to the oppressed and proclaiming God's favor, we know that he's doing that in conjunction with the anointing that comes from the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, it says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now what's interesting is that Mormons and Unitarians believe that Jesus had a regular birth just like you and I did. Their mom and dad fell in love, an eighth grade talk happened, and out you came. You were born. By the way, you shouldn't be waiting till the eighth grade to have that talk with your kids, but... That's how you got here. And Mormons and Unitarians believe that's how Jesus got here too. Your mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, exact same way. But at Jesus' baptism, God laid sonship on him. So Jesus was born just regular like you and I. But at his baptism, Jesus became the son of God. But just a simple reading of the gospel tells us that's not true. The beginning of the gospel of John tells us that Jesus was with God in the beginning. So before there was a creation, Jesus was there. It also tells us in the next verse that Jesus was the one responsible for creating creation. Then it tells us in verse 14 that Jesus, the eternal pre-existing Son of God, took on flesh and came and dwelt among us. So Jesus' baptism is the opening ceremony of his public ministry. As of yet, he's not done any ministry But notice that the only ones participating in the fanfare are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's as if no one else even notices, according to Mark. And what do we see? We see that God is present with Jesus. We see that Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we see that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. Now here's the good news. The good news is that if you are in Christ, you can claim these things for yourself. If you're in Christ, meaning if you have joined your life, somebody thinks that I'm not doing a good job. I agree with them. I agree with them. No, no, well, this is going well. I feel like it's going well. Here we go. If you join your life up to Jesus, 
Colossians chapter 3 says that your life becomes hidden in Christ. And if your life is hidden in, in Christ, then you can claim all three of these things for yourself. So there are some things that I would love for you to write down on your way out this morning. First, in Christ, God is near and present. In Christ, God is near and present. So it says the heavens were torn open. That language is used one more time in the Gospel of Mark. And it's at Jesus' death, when he gives up his spirit, when he yields his spirit to death, and he says, it is finished. It says, meanwhile, while that's happening, inside the temple there was a large curtain, and that curtain was ripped in two. That curtain separated the most holy place for the Jewish people, what they called the Holy of Holies. They believed that was ground center for God's presence on earth. Now they could experience his goodness on the other side of that curtain. They could experience his blessing on the other side of that curtain. But that curtain was reserved for God and God alone. And only one time a year after some very specific rituals by one specific priest could one time a year one person go behind that curtain. But on the mo- at the moment that Jesus says it is finished, that curtain according to the gospels was ripped not from the bottom to the top, which is what would happen if a human was ripping it, from, from the top to the bottom, God saying, there will be no more separation between God and man because of what has happened on that hill outside of Jerusalem where Jesus yielded up his life. God is present in Christ. We see this in Psalm 139, beautifully expressing presence of God with us. It says that God is with us when we move. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You searched out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. God is with us when we think. You discern my thoughts from afar. It's that parental phenomenon when you can look at your child's face and you know exactly what they're thinking and it's always bad. (laughs) God knows. He always knows what we're thinking. He's with us when we speak. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He's with us when we're at our heights. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. He's with us when we're in the depths. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He's with us when we wake up. If I take the wings of the morning, he's with us when we go to sleep. And I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, which is where the sun would set if you were living in Israel, when it, he's with us when it's light. He's with us when it's dark. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day. He's with us when we were in the womb. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. And he's with us when he's thinking about us. How precious are to me your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. If you are in Christ today, God is always with you. But here's the problem. We interpret God is with me as I get everything I want. That's how we would use it. When something good happens to us, what do we say? God was really with me. And what do we say when something bad happens to us? Where is God? We become selective in our accusations of where is God. Amanda and I grew up in the early 90s, and so we have a soft spot for hip-hop. <laughs> we found some real Jesus-glorifying hip-hop artists, and I want you to see and hear the words to one of my favorite songs. I'm totally not going to do this justice. Seek it out. 
It's easy to blame God, but harder to fix things. We look in the sky like, why aren't you listening? Watching the news in our living rooms on the big screens and talking about God. If God's really real, then where is he? And this just nails me. It nails me because this, this happens to me. I watch the news. I see all the terrible things that are happening in our country. I see all the terrible things that are happening in the world. And I say, God, where are you? If, why are you not intervening? Why are you not changing? Why are you not doing some of these things? Meanwhile, asking all of those questions in a living room of luxury. Asking God, where are you? Based on the things that I've seen on a 64-inch big screen television. We get selective with our accusations of God, where are you? Now the scripture gives us permission. The Psalms is more than enough permission to ask God tough questions. It's more than enough permission to vent, to be frustrated, to be honest about that frustration. But there is a gentle and subtle shift that can happen from God, where are you? To God, you weren't there. But Psalm 139 tells us that's just bad theology. To ever say, God, you weren't there is wrong. And pain and frustration is not an excuse to think wrongly about God. Because here's what happens if we believe that lie, that God was not there for us when fill in the blank. It leads us to isolate ourselves. And whenever we isolate ourselves, we make bad decisions. All you have to do is be married for a few uh, moments and you know that isolation is a bad thing. You have that fight, that quarrel, and what happens? You go to bed early or you go and pout in a different room. Has anything good ever emerged from that pouting and isolation? Have you ever gone into your bedroom to complain about your wife to the Lord or to yourself or whatever or your husband? That's really the way it works. Wives never, or husbands never have to go in to complain about their wives, only the other way around. And you're complaining. You're, you're, and the more that you get angry, you come out and you're like, hey, I was just in there so mad at you and just talking bad about you to the Lord. But I love you more now because I've done that. I went into my office to passively aggressive pout about you and I just come out with a Fresh vigor for our marriage. <laughs> That's never happened. That's never happened. Right? Because in isolation, we make bad decisions. So this, this only probably happens to me. But here's the bad decisions that I make when I isolate myself. First, I feel sorry for myself. Right? I'm a victim. I deserve better. Nothing good ever happens to me. Everything good always happens to somebody else. When I isolate myself, I believe and I rehearse the worst about people. They wanted to do it. It was a scheme against me. They were intentional. They always do this. They never do this. When I isolate, I end up only taking counsel from my own echo chamber. See, the problem with isolating ourselves is we vent out loud and that echo comes back to us and we take it as truth. That's why some of us have believed some pretty serious lies about God. Because in our pain, we've, we've vented about God. Where were you? You weren't around. Why weren't you around? And we let the echo come back to us and we took it as gospel truth. 
And so now we have built our lives and our faith on a fundamental lie that God is with us when things are good and he's not with us when things are bad. But in Christ, in Christ you can say, God is always with me. He's always near. He's always present. The second thing, in Christ I've been empowered for ministry. I've been empowered for ministry. In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, who's more like us, because the Apostle Paul, he was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. You remember on his road to persecute Christians, Jesus appeared to him in resurrected form. But Timothy was just somebody who heard the gospel, who heard the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return, and believed it the same as we have. And this is what he said to Timothy. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. I love that Paul just hits this right on the head because Timothy is a guy who wants to do ministry. He wants to have his life used for the things that matter most. He has a calling on his life, the same as all of us. There was a work to be done. And Paul reminds him, God gave us a spirit not of fear because anything meaningful that you will do will never start out with a confident you. Anything worth value of doing, there will always be apprehension in you. It will always be a risk. You'll always have to jump off the cliff. If you feel called to something that right now you're saying, well, I could do this easily. This will be no problem. Then get a bigger and better dream. Get a higher and more lofty and more impactful goal. Because everything worth doing will start out as apprehension in us. But Paul reminds Timothy, no, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. Which is great because that power that comes from the spirit of God moves us into the realm of the impossible. Which is where all of us want to live. All of us want to see God do the impossible. All of us want to see God do a miracle. And if given the option, we would love for him to do that miracle through us. That's right. Like, why is he always doing miracles through Tim Tebow? Tim Tebow this week (laughs) raised somebody from the dead. I started looking around going, is there anybody else that needs to be that I can pray for? Because it's nice when we hear about it from somebody else, but... We want God to use us. We want God to use us. And by the power of the Spirit, we can do the impossible. We can do what would not ordinarily be realistic. It's also a spirit of love. Because any ministry done by any one of us that's not built on love is just manipulation. Some of us have been a part of churches that didn't really love us. They were just trying to move us from step one to step two to step three to step four. And they were trying to get us to step five because that was the goal. We were spiritually manipulated along the way. But it's a spirit of love, and it's a spirit of self-control. You need self-control if you're going to fulfill your calling and do your ministry and be a part of the solution because every ministry eventually will involve people, and people are always slower and more difficult than we originally imagined. The best part of anything is people. The worst part of anything is the people. And if you're going to minister to people, you need self-control. A few times in 
2 Timothy, Paul lists out for Timothy some qualifications, some characteristics of a minister, and he includes the word patience in both of those lists because you need patience with people. Some of you have been trying to pour your life into somebody, and it's two steps forward and six steps back. It's one month where it looks good and six months where it looks bad. Patience, self-control. This is the power and the empowerment that you've been given by the Spirit of God. There was a great missionary in early 19th century India, William Carey. He's known as the father of modern missions, and he has this quote, may be familiar to some of you. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. I think a good number of us today would raise our hands and say, I'm a person who expects God to do great things. That when somebody gets a diagnosis in my family or friends, I believe with all my heart that God can intervene. When things start to look south at work, I believe that God can turn it around. When I am in need, I believe and I even expect that God will be a provider for me. But I wonder if it's time for you to take the long step from expectation to attempt. That you would not be a person who just expects God to do this great work. That you would actually take a step and God would you do this great work through me. And to prove my expectation, I will go ahead and step forward believing that you are going to come through for me. This is the kind of thing that's possible when we know with confidence that we've been empowered by the Spirit of God in Christ. And number three, in Christ, God affirms his love for me. There's a great misunderstanding in our world. It's a beautiful sentiment. But it's that we are all the children of God. You hear that consistently on the news or in a blog post or an Instagram post. Why can't we get along? Why can't there just be peace? We're all the children of God. And it's beautiful and it will warm your heart. It's it's not actually true. According to the Bible, you were born the creation of God. God absolutely knit you together when you were in your mother's womb and he knew you then. But to be called a son of God or a daughter of God is a right that has to be handed to you. It's handed to you, according to John chapter 1, verse 12, when you believe in the name of Jesus. We have to be adopted into the family of God. Scripture talks about our adoption Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says that you were chosen for adoption before the earth was formed. So before God created Niagara Falls and the Grand Canyon and the mountains of Yellowstone, he saw you, a spiritual orphan, and said, I want that person in my family. Romans chapter 8 tells us that all of us long for spiritual adoption. Our world has different words for that, but there is a longing inside all of us to be in the family of God. Galatians chapter 4 tells us that Jesus redeemed us for the purpose of adoption. He paid the penalty for your sin so that you could be in his family. Romans chapter 8 tells us that we can relate to God as Father through adoption. We can call on God in prayer as a Father because we've been adopted as sons and daughters. And according to Galatians chapter 3, we take hold of this adoption by faith. And John chapter 1, by faith in the name of Jesus. You know, God said to Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved son and in you I'm 
well pleased. But what's interesting to me is that Jesus, Jesus receives this affirmation before he had even done anything. This is the beginning of his public ministry. It's going to be a three-year-long ministry. He's not yet healed anybody. He's not yet given sight to anybody. He's not yet done any of those things. He's not talked about the kingdom of God. This is the right at the beginning. And yet at the beginning, before he had done the work, God said, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This seems antithetical to how we think about God. God would say, if you want my pleasure, then do something that's pleasing to me. But to Jesus, he says, before you've done anything, well pleased. It's our daughter Willa's first birthday this week. There's a seven-year gap in between our middle daughter, Annabeth, and Willa. And that seven years was a pretty long road for us, and it's filled with a lot of bumps and pain. And finally, Amanda was pregnant, and we were excited to have the baby. So about a year ago, right before bed, she says, whoa, hey, maybe something's happening with this baby. And I, well, this is our third kid, so I say, well, I'm going to bed. If you need to, wake me up. And I went to bed. So, terrible husband. She knew what she was doing when she got married to me. I've been, I've been like this the whole time. So I do. I go to sleep. And honestly, I sleep pretty good. And about 3.30, 4 in the morning, she wakes me up. She says, hey, reconsidering my marriage options, number one. But number two... We need to go to the hospital. I've been laboring all night. I've not slept any. There was some judgmentalness in that sentence, I think. And so we get the kids in the car and we drop them off at a friend's house. We head to the hospital. And if you have not yet had a baby, some of you are pregnant. I see some people pregnant. If this is your first baby, here's what happens. You have a lot of labor at home and then you rush to the hospital. But by the time that you get to the hospital, right before a nurse is going to tell you officially if you're in labor, it kind of slows down and they get this real judgmental look like, oh, you poor thing, you don't know the difference between labor and non-labor. And then, you know, and so that was kind of happening. And so we thought they're gonna send us back home, but they didn't. They said, let's have this baby today. And so they got us in a room and they started all the things and they got Amanda the good medicine, uh, which labor is still very hard, but the medicine makes it easier on the husband. I think that's why they invented the medicine. And so we're just having a good time, good time. We got friends in the room, we got family in the room. And, you know, we got there very early in the morning and labor doesn't happen fast, or at least it wasn't happening fast at that time. And so it's about lunchtime. So Amanda says, why don't you go and get something to eat? Get out of here, stretch your legs. Our hospital is connected to a mall via Skybridge. And so I thought, well, that'd be great. I'll go get some food, run some errands, come back, have a baby. It'd be, you know, all that. And so uh, I wind my way through the hospital and I get up on the Skybridge. I'm over the middle of the road and my phone rings and it's somebody from the room saying, get back to the room. It's go time. I'm like, well, I was going to eat a Chick-fil-A. Jesus is chicken. I feel like this is a moral dilemma. So, of course, I go back and I'm excited. And I don't know what your family like is like, but our family is like, at least I'm like, we shoo out our friends and family gently because this is an Amanda and Curtis moment. This is a Jones moment. And when we bring our kids into the world, of course, there's 15 medical staff in there with you. And here comes baby Willa, long and awaited and prayed for baby Willa you know, you just love her from second one. Second one, heart and soul, you love her. 
And not one time in those original moments that I think, beautiful girl, I look forward to you earning my love. Not one time, because I was already with her, heart and soul, all the way. And Jesus says this, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God know how to give good gifts to his children? So if you would not withhold love and approval from your own children, you knowing you with all of your many strengths, but all of your many, many weaknesses, why would we ever think for one second that God would withhold love and approval from us until we earned it? Now, will there be some disciplined, corrective moments with baby Willa as she gets older? Absolutely. But Hebrews tells us that when that discipline comes to us, we should take it as a badge of honor because God only disciplines his sons and daughters. You are loved today before you do anything good. Before you could earn, before you could be pleasing, God is already pleased with you. He says it in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When my heart was still hardened, Jesus died for me. When I still had my back turned to him, Jesus died for me. When I was too ignorant to be interested, Jesus died for me. So this baptism, it's the beginning of his three-year ministry. That's a little over a thousand days. And you think about all that he accomplished in a thousand days. What could you accomplish in the next thousand days if you believed heart and soul that God was with you, that he had empowered you, and that he loved you? Man, the options just seem overwhelming. I could do a lot. I could do a lot if I really believe those things. Here's the great, great news. For Jesus, it just all started with one simple step of obedience. He was baptized. A thousand days didn't start with a grand plan, just started with one step of obedience. So you don't have to worry about day a thousand. You don't have to worry about step 15 and a 25 step plan to fix whatever problem is stirring in your heart right now. Just what's your next simple step of obedience. And as you take that next step, God is with you. He has empowered you and he loves you. Let's pray. God, I pray that your word to us has broken through, broken through all the, my distractive, distracted mind and heart and environment. I pray that your word has landed on us today. And I pray that you would help us to be doers of that word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you stand to your feet?